This is the last message in a series called Faith Checkup. It's been on the book of James, five chapters, five weeks. This is chapter five, and uh, we've drawn a theme out of each chapter of the book of James and spoken on that each time. So today, in James chapter five, verses one through six, James issues a very stern, very sobering warning to those who love money. Now, this is really strong from James here, okay? So you need to hold on tight. It's uh, not the kind of passage we might be used to hearing at a weekend service here at Crosswind. So let's read it. James 5, 1 through 6. Look here, you rich people. Weep and groan with anguish because of all of the terrible troubles ahead of you. Feeling blessed? Your wealth is rotting away, and your fine clothes are moth-eaten rags. Your gold and silver are corroded. The very wealth you were counting on will eat away your flesh like fire. This corroded treasure you have hoarded will testify against you on the day of judgment. For listen, hear the cries of the field workers whom you have cheated of their pay. The cries of those who harvest your fields have reached the ears of the Lord of heaven's armies. You have spent your years on earth in luxury, satisfying your every desire. You have fattened yourselves for the day of slaughter. You have condemned and killed innocent people who do not resist you. So as I said, this is not the typical passage we might be used to here at Crosswinds. It it's almost apocalyptic, the language, isn't it? Like I should have behind me the eye of Sauron as we read it. But money, like politics, or religion, or politics, or sports, or politics, or food, or politics, is a divisive issue. And so what I'd like to do here at the outset is really try to soften this up a bit. Just try to soften this here at the beginning. I'd love for you to just pretend that you and I are sitting at a nice little coffee shop and we're just enjoying a cup of coffee somewhere. We're not angry or defensive. We are just having a respectful and lighthearted discussion about a really serious subject. And uh, I don't want to be like angry preacher guy. I just want to chat with you and not preach at you. So a couple of things I want to make clear about these sobering warnings that we just read that James offers to uh, the wealthy people. First, it's really important for us to understand who exactly James is talking to here. He's talking to wealthy people, but he's not talking to all wealthy people. James is speaking in this passage to wealthy people who have come by their wealth through dishonest means. They have withheld wages from their workers. In other words, they have stolen from their employees and they have taken that money and they, what they have stolen, they have used to feather their own nest and they have used to live a self-indulgent lifestyle. And James is basically saying in this passage, look, you dishonest, wealthy, filthy, rich people, God has seen this. God hears the cries of the harvesters in your fields and the injustice of this. 
will, in effect, take the witness stand against you in the day of judgment, and it will end up being your undoing. So I think we can take two themes from this passage. First, we must honor God with our wealth. We must honor God with our wealth. Listen, just because I'm not stealing from employees and then oppressing them with what I have stolen and increasing my own lavish, luxurious lifestyle with it, that does not mean that I am not susceptible to dishonoring God with my wealth. Second theme is, and this is so big, and this is Bible-wide, Bible-wide, this is consistent, the poor are just as valuable as the rich. Every bit is valuable. And if you've been reading through the book of James as we've gone through this series, then you might remember a few other times in the book of James where he talks about money. Back in chapter 2, we see that evidently some of these young churches, these fledgling churches that are you know, just started up and they're trying to get going, they don't have like a New Testament to read like we do where we can see things that, uh, you know, that have been passed down to us so we know some ways to organize church and stuff. They're just, they're just kind of going through it. And what was happening is rich people were coming into their services and you have poor people sitting up front. Can you even imagine if we did this at Crosswinds? Poor people were sitting up front and the ushers would come down and, or whatever they had for ushers and, and they would, they'd say, excuse me, you're going to have to, this seat's taken, you're going to have to get out. Just go stand back in the crowd somewhere, just, it, it doesn't matter where, just, just somewhere, not here. And they would have the wealthy people sit in front in the places of honor. Despicable practice. And James calls them right out for it. And he says, this kind of favoritism, this kind of discrimination is sin. It's sin. So wealth is a subject, it appears in James 4 too, wealth is a subject that is on the mind of James as he's writing through this letter. So let's do this this morning. This is uh, a checkup series, right? So we're interested in doing a faith checkup. Let's go through a few preliminary questions, shall we? Uh, Just like a doctor would ask questions in an attempt to discern a cause We can ask some questions too, and here they are. Just between you and God, just in your seat, you you know, don't, please don't raise your hand, um, and just see if any of these hit you where you live. Do I take shortcuts financially? Think about your taxes, think about insurance claims, all that. Do I cut corners. Am I completely, not 85%, not even 99%, am I completely honest? Do I report all of my income, even though it might benefit me personally, financially, to only report most of it? Do I hoard money Or on the other end of the spectrum, do I just spend it all? My father used to say of me that money turns to liquid in my hands. You know, do I spend it all so that I have nothing left for my family? Am I in the habit of spending money that I don't have, a.k.a. going into debt? 
Am I holding back on God and on taking care of people in need? Now, these are just a few questions, and, and what's the point of them all? What are we after with these questions? What we are looking for is evidence of a disease, and that disease is called the love of money. The love of money. Now, one of the most misquoted Bible verses ever is 1 Corinthians excuse me, 1 Timothy 6.10. And in our culture, most people have heard it this way. Money is the root of all evil. That's not what the verse says at all. In fact, we're going to look at it right now. 1 Timothy 6.10 says, For the love of money, not money itself, but the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered away from the true faith and pierce themselves with many sorrows. And I am certain that we could spend the next month doing nothing but telling stories about how the second half of that verse has been the case for people all throughout human history. The love of money leads to all kinds of evil. So this disease, the love of money, can manifest itself in many ways. We might say that this disease causes many different symptoms. So we're going to do a self-examination right now. And, uh, you know, sometimes we, we're sitting with a doctor and we're, we're talking through stuff. Sometimes we know what some symptoms are, so we just kind of check ourselves. See if any of these symptoms pop for you. A reluctance to help others. That's something going on in your world dysfunctional relationships, people who love money rarely ever have, you know, deep, meaningful relationships with people. The relationships are almost always surface level and shallow. They don't want to go deep. Dysfunctional relationships, maybe you view people in terms of classes. You don't look at everybody else and see them as peers see them as e on, kind of on equal ground and that you can just really talk and get to know anybody, but rather you see kind of like you have yourself and then there are those below you and those above you and you've begun to see everything in terms of classes. Also, the love of money can lead to a lack of giving, lack of giving back to God out of the abundance with which he has blessed us. The Old Testament prophet Malachi called this robbing God. And lastly, it could be a lack of contentment. I think that a lack of contentment always 100% of the time accompanies the disease of the love of money. So when it comes to this business of honoring God with our wealth and how we come by it, there are a lot of symptoms that might point to the traces of a disease called the love of money. So what I'd like to do here is before we go any further, I want to make some clarifying statements about wealth, okay, and what kind of get a fuller biblical view of wealth, and we're only going to take about two minutes to do it. It could be a whole series of messages in itself. Just a few clarifying statements, so we're all leaving on the same page here this morning. First of all, it is not wrong to be wealthy. And I know that in our culture, oftentimes the wealthy are demonized. And what we really have to ask ourselves there is, you know, wealthy compared to who? 
The 1% in America, that's one thing. But, you know, even people who would be considered poor in America are still in the richest 1% of people in the world. Okay, so wealthy compared to who? But it is not wrong to be wealthy. In fact, oftentimes in Scripture, increased wealth is God's blessing on those who are faithful to Him and obedient to Him, to those who fear Him. There are many promises in Scripture that are tied to increased wealth. Now, it needs to be said also that God's blessing comes to us in many different ways, and it's not always in the form of money. Okay? Sometimes it is. Not always. That's completely up to God how He'd like to, to bless us. But oftentimes, increased wealth is His blessing. Think Solomon. Job, Abraham, Jacob, and many, many more all throughout the pages of Scripture. Also, wealth is amoral. It's amoral. It is neither good nor bad. It is neither right nor wrong. We can think of wealth like a knife. A knife is a useful tool that can be used for many different things. You could use a knife to prepare dinner for me. That would be a really good way for you to use a knife. You could use a knife to carve something beautiful. You could use a knife to do surgery on somebody and, and you know, remove a tumor or something. A knife can be used for really good things, but a knife in the wrong hands can be an instrument that causes incredible pain and suffering, can be an instrument that causes harm, even death. So wealth is amoral. Wealth is not an end in itself, but rather it is a means to an end. Wealth is a tool. So very important for us to understand that not every rich person loves money. Just because someone might have a lot does not mean that they love it. But there is a risk that comes with having great wealth. And this is beautifully illustrated uh, by Jesus with this story that he tells in Luke chapter 12 about this uh, rich guy with some barns. He says, then he told them a story, a parable, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, okay? He says, a rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. He said to himself, what should I do? I don't have room for all my crops. And then he said, I know, I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I'll have enough room to store all my wheat and other goods. And I will sit back and say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy and eat and drink and be merry. But God said to him words that I don't ever want to hear from God. You fool. You fool. You will die this very Night. Another translation says, this very night your soul will be required of you. Then, who will get everything that you have filled your barns with? Who will get everything that you have worked for? Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. Now, there are many great lessons that we can take from this one passage. For our purposes this morning, what I want to focus on is a word that appears a few times in there, and that word is enough. Enough. This guy, this guy has barns, plural, filled with produce. 
And he says, I don't have room enough. He says, my barns are not large enough. If only I had bigger barns, then I might be able to finally arrive at enough. So this issue of enough is extremely important. It was important. Jesus is here teaching about it. And it's important in our day as well. It doesn't matter what season of life you are in. You could be a college student, newly married, empty nester, single parent, retired, married with a large family. Doesn't matter. Every one of us wrestles with this question. How much is enough? This hits all of us right where we live every day. What does enough even look like? Is there some magic number that's like the amount of money that I'm allowed to spend on things per month and I can never go higher than that? And furthermore, who says? So our question this morning is, how do I discern what enough looks like for me in my current life context? We're going to spend the rest of the message this morning kind of revolving around this question. But before we go there, let me just ask you, and maybe you uh, have thought this just sitting there in your seat, why is it that we love money? What is the draw to it? What, what tempts us to go there? And all throughout history, in our time, in the time of Jesus, in and even long before uh, Jesus and, and the whole Christmas thing, long before that, you might be saying, well, I don't love it. I just want to date it. I want to buy it flowers. I want to snuggle with it, right? But we see all of these symptoms, and why are we so susceptible to this disease? You know, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. That's why he came. But more of what he said about money was recorded than all that he ever said about heaven and hell and salvation combined. Did you know that? You know why that is the case? That's the case because many people in Jesus' time had the same disease. And we can be nearly sure that James heard Jesus say a lot about money. There's a lot that he said about money. God says the love of it leads to all kinds of evil. So why do we love it? It could be that we want prestige. We think that money will give us that or status. You know, we want to be on a certain level. You know, maybe it's our parents were on one level. We feel like the need to be on some other level uh, or outdoing the Joneses or whatever. Could be that we want material comforts. We just want a lot of stuff so that I just never get bored because of all my stuff that I have. Money will afford me that opportunity. Could be that we are in search of that elusive peace of mind and we've convinced ourselves that money will bring it to us. Could also be that I don't ever want to have to say no to any desire. If we have 
stinking loads of money, then I don't ever have to deny myself any experience or any pleasure, right? Could also be that we are looking for security, security, and we think that having a lot of money will bring us that security so we can sleep well at night. You know, I came across a fascinating story as I was preparing this message. The story is of J. Paul Getty, the founder of Getty Oil. Maybe you've heard of him. Fortune magazine called him the richest man in America. Uh, Guinness Book of World Records in 1966 called him the world's richest private citizen. And on July 10th, 1973, Getty's grandson, 16-year-old grandson, was kidnapped. And the kidnappers demanded $17 million in return for Getty's grandson's safe return. And so in November of that same year, because Getty refused to pay, okay? He refused to pay. So in November of that same year, now... July to November, they were talking months and months have gone by, okay? A package was received with a lock of hair and a human ear that belonged to Getty's grandson. And there was a note attached that said, quote, if we don't get some money within 10 days, then the other ear will arrive. In other words, he will arrive in little bits, end quote. So there was a movie made about this particular incident, called All the Money in the World, came out around Christmas time. I wasn't paying a lot of attention to movies around Christmas time, so it kind of was under the radar for me. But um, yeah, you can watch the movie when it comes out on video, and you can see the rest of the story. But check out this clip. They will do things to Paul that cannot be undone for any amount of money. We have to pay. This simply isn't possible. My financial position has changed. Really? I mean, 30 seconds ago, you said it was a good day. I mean, I'm not all that bright, but I can multiply as well as you. With oil up as much as it was this morning, you have amassed another fortune. Well, what if the embargo is lifted and oil were to crash? I'd be exposed. I have never been more vulnerable financially than I am right now. Mr. Getty, with all due respect, nobody has ever been richer than you are at this moment. I have no money to spare. What would it take? I mean, what would it take for you to feel secure? More. Mm. More. More. The world's richest private citizen has no money to spare. Not even the kidnapping of his own grandson can move his heart to part with some of his precious wealth. As we said, one of the reasons we love money is for the security that we assume it brings. But the irony is that the more wealth Getty amassed, the more insecure he became. It's so deceptive. You know, using his fortune to help someone in need was not an option for him. Not even an option. Just like the rich dude that Jesus was talking about. You can almost hear it. Can't you help someone in need? No, 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 no. Bigger barns. That's all I need. Bigger barns. You see, Getty had the disease. We're asking the question, what does enough look like? For Getty, there was no such thing as 
enough. So let's get personal with this here, okay? We're doing an examination. We're discussing symptoms. Let's talk about some preventative care. How do we answer the question, how much is enough in our own current life context? How do we do that? Well, I came across something really intriguing and relevant to what we're talking about here this morning, which is this issue of enough, and I want to share it with you. Those of the Jewish faith have an interesting ceremony they do as part of their Sabbath observance that is very instructive for us when it comes to answering this question, what is enough? It's called the Havdalah ceremony, the Havdalah Ceremony And part of this Havdalah involves pouring wine into a chalice. Some of you are like, I'm in. <laughs> pouring wine into a chalice and having it overflow onto a saucer. In his book, Thou Shalt Prosper, Rabbi Daniel Lappin explains. He says, as the Sabbath ebbs away each Saturday night, Jewish families prepare for the productive work week ahead by singing the joyful Havdalah service. This observance divides the Sabbath from the upcoming work week and asks God to increase both the family's offspring and their wealth. It also highlights their hands as if to beseech, on the work, uh, beseech blessing on the work of those very hands. The Havdalah service is recited over a cup of wine that runs over into the saucer beneath. This overflowing cup symbolizes the intention to produce during the week ahead not only sufficient to fill one's own cup, but also an excess that will allow overflow for the benefit of others. That's what enough is for your family, whatever it takes to fill that cup. And then you keep pouring so you have plenty to give to others. Now, here are some pictures of some Havdalah sets. I know some of you might have your phones out already and you're, you're, you're already on Amazon trying to buy yourself a Havdalah set. But you can see that they, they look different. They come in different styles. They come in different sizes, different shapes, different colors. The, it doesn't matter what size the chalice is, what size the cup is. It can be any size. It could be like shot glass size or a stein, all right? It doesn't matter what the size is. All that's important when it comes to this is what the cup represents. So the cup represents all that your family needs to live on. It is not the whole of your income, rather it is that part of your income that you need to keep set aside to make sure that the needs of your family are met. So when it's filled to the top, it's that portion of my income that goes to take care of my family. Then, the remainder of the wine, which represents my total income, is poured out, runs over the top of the cup, down the sides, and fills the plate, this overflow represents that portion of my income that is over and above what my family needs to live on. This is the portion of my income that is given away to meet the needs of others. This is my overflow. So, I want to use this simple and beautiful ceremony 
to extract some principles that will help us to determine the size of our own chalice. What should the size of our own cup be? Because that's really just an illustration of our question, how much is enough? So I'm going to offer four principles to consider, okay? Four principles to consider. First, my family's needs get met first. My family comes first. Now, this is not greed. This is not selfishness. This is not, well, all you care about is yourself. What this is, is biblical. This is sound. This is wise. You know, on airplanes, before you take off, they get the person up there and they're going through all the safety procedures and what you should do in case of a crash or a water landing or whatever. And one of the things that they tell you is you make sure that your own oxygen mask is on you and properly in place and then look around you to see if anybody else needs help and then you can help them too. But you take care of your own oxygen mask first. The same principle applies here. You and I are in no position to meet the needs of others if we are not taking care of our own needs first. Secondly, discerning what enough is, is between myself and God alone. Listen, alone. It is not between you and your parents and God. It is not between you and your pastor and God. It's not between you and your in-laws and God. Now this happened earlier and you need to know that I'm from a, I come here from a Baptist church and sometimes I would hear some amens. I could have used an amen on that <laughs> in-laws part. So it is not between you and your in-laws and God. And God. All right, that's great. Crosswinds Baptist Church. <laughs> but that number, whatever that number is, that number is prayerfully considered and it is settled privately between you and God alone. Third, God alone is the ultimate judge of how I managed the wealth with which I was entrusted. God alone is the judge. And that leads right into the next one. Because God alone is the judge, I do not have the right to judge others in this area, and neither do you. We do not have the right to judge the size of another person's chalice. We don't. That belongs to God alone. You privately determine what the size of your cup should be. It's between you and God. He is the judge and I have no right to intrude on that scene as if I'm wiser than God, as if I have deeper insight into your current life context than God does, as if I have a higher authority than God. I have no right to step in on that and say, no, you're wrong. This is what you ought to do. Not only is that incredibly arrogant, but it's stepping in on turf that belongs to God alone. 
Now, I'll be really transparent with you. I, I fell into some of this judging early on in ministry, and not here at Crosswinds, but at the first church where I was a youth pastor. Uh, I am from Loudoun County, Virginia, and you can look it up. Loudoun County, Virginia was the, the fastest-growing county in America in the 1990s, and in terms of average household income, it is the richest county in America, and that's where I'm from. Now, my salary probably kept that number a little lower than what it might have been, but I remember we were going through a time in the, the church in which I worked, and there were weeks, months that we weren't able to pay an electric bill. And my response to that, which was totally wrong, was to judge people for not giving enough. I'd walk through the parking lot. I would see all of the types of cars that we would have in our parking lot. I became, I think what was really going on there is I was just straight up jealous. And worse than being jealous, I was envious. Envy is worse than jealousy. Envy is like uh, malicious jealousy. Jealousy says, I want what you have. But envy says, I want what you have. But since I can't have it, I'm going to do whatever I can to make you feel miserable about having it yourself. That's envy. And that's worse. So I began to make character judgments about people, brothers and sisters in Christ. I began to make character judgments about people just based on the kind of car they drove. You know, and I, I would say things to another pastor like, yeah, boy, I hope that guy's in, enjoying that little creature comfort in his car while we're sitting here working in the dark this week. I said, actually said things like that. Now, fortunately, I'm not there anymore. Uh, God has done a deep work of transformation in my heart, and uh, I've come to, you know, see the light on all of this stuff. But that kind of jealousy and that kind of judging Man, it can just creep in so deceptively, so unnoticed, so quietly, so subtly. Dave Ramsey says, There is no concrete, cookie-cutter answer to what enough looks like for every family. The top of the Havdalah cup does not have a number written on it that says, This much and no more. Every family's different, and the needs of every family are different. And those things that are needs today in this season of life might not be needs in another season of life. The size of a person's chalice will change throughout the seasons of life. In my own family right now, we're, we're trying to set aside some money for our, our kids' college. We want to help them get through college. Not 100% sure what that'll look like yet, but you know, if, if they go to college and... But once they get to college and once they're through with that, we're not going to keep setting money aside for that. You see, the, the size of our chalice will change. We, it will you know, be less. It will become smaller. But the beautiful thing about this picture, and this is what's so awesome about this illustration of the Havdalah cup, is that as the size of our cup decreases because we pay off our mortgage or because you know we're setting aside money for things now that we won't be for later. As it decreases, the size of our overflow simultaneously increases. That's what's so awesome about this. And I think Dave Ramsey nailed it when he said, 
the most fun you can have with money is just giving it away. And so in a sense, that's, that's what we're doing at the Parsons house right now. We're, you know, we're working hard and, and trying to pay some things aggressively and, and save. And so that chalice size becomes smaller so that our overflow can increase. We want to be able to bless people with resources that God entrusts to us. So again, there's no cookie cutter answer to this question. However, Dave Ramsey does offer a helpful tip. He says, if your family is lacking because of your extreme giving, your cup is probably too small. It's not a thimble. It's a cup. If there is never any overflow to help others, then your cup is probably too big. He says it's not a swimming pool, it's a cup. So maybe you're saying, okay, I hear you, I get it, I, I hear those principles, I'm down with those, but practically what does this look like for me? I might need a few pointers on arriving at that number as I seek to figure it out. Well, if that's you, then I want to offer you quickly here some steps that you can take right now to figure this out in your own life. First of all, prayer. And I am not trying to just force this thing that every pastor is required to say during every message, that prayer is somehow the answer to every. Listen, prayer is extremely important. Prayer is communicating with God. It's us talking to God. It is us hearing from Him. It is Him confirming things in our own hearts. It is... Uh, praying for wisdom. God, help me to see my circumstances from your vantage point, which is probably a great definition of what wisdom is. Help me to step outside of myself and to be able to see that. Prayer. Prayer is where it begins and it sustains it the whole way through. Secondly, we prioritize. This one is huge. If you are doing Financial Peace University, we do that often here at Crosswinds because one of the things that we learn during Financial Peace University is this, priorities. You know, maybe I'm paying attention to something and I'm treating it, financially speaking, like it's really important, but it's really not all that important. And, and there's something else that should be really important that I have been neglecting. My wife and I had a, like a, a rude awakening with this um, when, because we haven't always handled money well, and uh, now it's a it's a different story. There's been a big transformation in us now, but um, you know we are late to the game in saving for retirement. You know, everybody told us when we were in our 20s, make sure you're putting money away now because of the magic of compound interest and all of that. And of course, we knew better. We knew that there would just be plenty of time later. So we're a little late to that party, and we'll, we'll never get the, we, we just ignored it. We, we will never have the benefits of compound interest that, that some of you might have who actually listened to Wise Counsel and started that early on. Um, but, you know, we had to learn to prioritize, and so now that is, uh, you know, a part of the size of our chalice is making sure that we're setting aside a certain percentage for our future and taking care of our retirement and so on because we want to be a blessing to our kids when we pass away, not a curse. So 
we, uh, we pray, we prioritize, and prioritizing is really just learning God's ways of handling money and then taking everything in your financial world and aligning around God's ways. That's prioritizing. Next, seek counsel. Seek counsel. This is so huge. You know, Solomon, wisest man who ever lived, not named Jesus Christ, said there is safety in a multitude of counselors. So I would encourage you, if you want to talk this through with a pastor, man, that would be time so well spent for us and for you, I hope. But it would be time so well spent just to sit and talk through and just to listen to your story and talk it out and and maybe give you some pointers as you are seeking the answer to this question. Not to come to us to get the answer to the question or to be told what to do, but just to uh, you know, get you on firm footing as, as you seek to arrive at that. Also, this could be someone in your small group. You know, maybe you've seen a couple in your small group and you know, you've always been impressed with them. It's like, man, you know, they just seem to pray a lot. They seem to you know, make really good, wise decisions concerning their career and their money and just their life and the kind of parents they are, the kind of uh, marriage they have. That is a couple that I think I could learn some stuff from. Go to that couple and ask them, like, hey, could we just sit down? And I'd love to hear, like, did you ever come to this point where you were trying to figure out what was enough? And, and, and when you did, what were some of the factors that went into that? Could really, really be helpful. So we pray, we prioritize, we seek counsel, and finally, we act. Okay? Um, the, the time comes when you have to stop doing research. You have to stop you know, seeking counsel, you're on like your 147th person from whom you want to seek counsel, okay? Don't prolong it. You got to act. You got to make the decision and you got to step out in a direction and begin living that way. So we're wrapping up here at the coffee shop. Our chat's coming to a close. You're cup is empty and mine is still full because I've been talking the whole time. Sorry. And before we leave, we want to hit on some things that you can think about before we get back together for another cup of coffee. Every message in this series has ended with some faith checkup questions. Maybe you want to write these down. Maybe you want to snap a picture of the screen when the last one is up there. But So some final faith checkup questions. First of all, what does your cup look like right now, today? What does it look like? What does your overflow look like today? Is it too much? Maybe too little? Maybe it's none? Why is that? Why is that? I remember uh, I taught Financial Peace University twice in the church from that I came from. And the first time we started out week one and I asked everybody like, okay, you've paid 90 bucks for this. You're, you're here to get something out of this. So what is it? What is it that you want to take away from this? And a buddy of mine raised his hand towards the back and he, and, um, he, he said, I want to be able to give. I want to be able to give lavishly and he started crying he said but i can't because i'll, I'll put it in terms of the havdalah because 
our cup right now, we have no overflow because we are paying off all of this consumer debt that I've amassed over the years. And he was weeping because he wanted to give. He wanted to do something that's so good and so right, but weeping because he can't do it. Now what's going to happen with him is, you know, he's going to get out of that, and he's going to get out of it a lot more quickly than he realizes once he sets his mind to it, and he will get to that place where where the size of his chalice will decrease while the size of his overflow increases, and he will be able to do that thing that he wants. But what does your overflow look like right now, and why? Am I jealous of the wealth of others? Again, that's just so subtle. Am I content? You know, Dave Ramsey says that the number one biggest secret to all wealth building comes down to one word, and that is contentment. Contentment. Am I content? That could be a whole message in itself. Am I earning wealth in an honest way? And lastly, putting it all together. Think of it all. Your income and all of your various income streams and the way that money comes to you through all those avenues, your investments, your retirement accounts, your all of it held together in your hands up to God. The writer of Hebrews says that all is open and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. We hold that all before God. Is it honoring? Is it honoring? Does it honor him? Does it please him? We'll leave you with that today. Let's pray. Father, we know that this issue of handling wealth hits us all right where we live. And I pray you would examine us, Lord, and see if there is anything in our lives concerning money that is not honoring to you, that you would expose it and you would lead us down your paths, paths that have been traveled successfully by millions and millions of people throughout time. God, we look to you to do this in our hearts because if you don't do it, then it won't get done. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.